so if you're thinking, you know, I wonder if you're, if you're thinking, gosh, am I a jerk? The best you can do is kind of guess. I have scientific proof that I'm a jerk. So uh, that, that was, that was pretty rough. Uh, you know, I, cause I, I tell myself I'm this amazing leader and for sure I've done some good things, but <laughs> you start looking at the data like, Oh, this looks differently when you work for me. This episode features a conversation with Dr. Tom Allrich, a seasoned engineer and engineering manager with over 30 years of experience. In addition, he is a consultant, an engineering fellow at Tandem Diabetes, and an adjunct professor of engineering at Biola University. He is also the author of Leading Engineers, a book tailored for engineering managers that melds the wisdom accrued from his extensive career in engineering and management with insightful leadership theories from academia. This unique blend of practical experience and scholarly insight makes the book both relatable and trustworthy. Leadership in business is important, especially in tech companies that are comprised of engineers, researchers, and scientists. Within the engineering community, there is a common misconception that engineers are solely problem solvers for complex technical issues. However, at its core, engineering is about critical thinking and often involves seeking questions rather than providing immediate solutions. Transforming good engineers to great engineers requires organizational leadership that creates environments in which questions are celebrated and curiosity is regarded as a signal of innovation. This is Favorable Environments a podcast sponsored by USD Discovery District. And now, here's Dr. Tom Altrich. You know, what What happened is I was working, I, I had wanted to get in the medical device uh, industry. I was, I was doing aerospace for 20 years. And um, I wanted to get in. It took me about five years to find a company that would, would take a, a risk on me. And uh, the, the thing I couldn't, repeatedly heard is, oh, well, you know, aerospace people, you know, they aren't very good. What? It's this, you know, embedded software is embedded software. What are you talking about? I was doing, you know, I just had just finished uh, uh, working, writing the software for the rudder on the Hawker Horizon Model 4000 business jet. You know, it's a level A application. And, uh, you know, anyway, so uh, I was at this company and uh, kind of a strange company where, um, no, I joined it and, and I got there and like, no one would say good morning. So you're walking in the morning, you're walking in the hall. Hey, good morning. You know, and, and they would look at their shoes and keep going. Like, what is this? So there was, you know, out of like 40 people, there's one guy who would say good morning. So his name was, was Paul DePerna. And so we became friends and, you know, he kind of like, yeah, this place is crazy. You know, they'd never say good morning. And, uh, anyway, we just became friends and, uh, Actually, the way I got involved, which is, I think, sometimes with startups, this is kind of the story. You know, it wasn't like, hey, we have a grand plan. We'd like you to come on board and be the um, director of software engineering. But um, he said, you know, I uh, I got this nephew and uh, he just graduated and my brother-in-law is is bugging me. He says, you, you know, I, you got to hire this guy. He's, he seems bright, but he's kind of lazy and unmotivated. He sits on the couch all day, watches TV. And from that description, like you're thinking, no way, 
right? Like there's no way you want to come, you know, the, the, he's, I want to hire you to mentor my lazy nephew. Uh, yeah, right. Get a job where you're supposed to deal with a boss's wrong right. nephew. Yeah. No, I said, no. And he's come on, you know? And so he stayed at me a couple of days in a row. And I said, look, okay, I'll meet with your nephew provided that afterwards you never talk about this again. Like I'm done talking about your bum nephew. And, uh, I meet the guy and he was nothing like Paul had said he was. He, he is, and, uh, continues to be the smartest guy I've ever known. One of the hardest workers, really good people skills. I mean, this guy was the complete package. And, you know, family dynamics are weird, I guess. I I don't know how, you know, but but today he's the only person who's at Tandem today who's been there longer than I have. And uh, everybody at Tandem will tell you, Jeff is amazing. I mean, he's he's a VP of engineering now and or of software engineering, and uh, he's just uh, remarkable. But but somehow his uncle <laughs> thought otherwise. So that was the original assignment was to to help Jeff. And you know the the truth was, I, Jeff didn't need my help. The the best thing I did for Jeff was kind of stay out of his way. And uh, not that he wanted me to stay away. He wasn't the kind of like, you know, he wasn't like a prima donna or anything. But at any rate, uh, so we hired him. Or, I mean, he was there. We hired me. And then we, you know, started hiring the software team. And, you know, the once we started working with Jeff, then Paul said, well, why don't you just run the software team? Oh. And what year was so, this? And what year was this? So frame? that was probably 2006, maybe 2007. So it's, wow. it's going to be 17 years in... Uh, in November, so working backwards, yeah, I guess that was 2006. Yeah. And this is like in Southern California. Yeah, so we were originally in Orange County, uh-huh. so the landmark for that would be Disneyland. So we're probably 15 miles south of Disneyland. Sure. And we're like, but, the early, um, were the, like the early days of the, I guess, startup was it kind of like uh, co-working space or like where were you like physically with your team? <laughs> So, so uh, originally, you know, originally it was Carl's Jr., but uh, real early on, Paul got a space for us on um, a little frontage road by the by that five freeway. And as uh, so people in Orange County will know Cabot Road right off the five. But uh, it, it was this little crazy storefront that you walk in and it's the size of a coffee shop. You know, you walk in and there's like an area for a desk. And then you go in the back and there's a bigger area and then there's kind of a um, storage area out back. And it turns out we had sublet this thing. So the storage area, uh, the the tenant, or the owner or, you know, whoever we were subletting from, that was his area. And that was the craziest thing. You know, you come in in the morning and there'd be like all these flat screen TVs and boxes. You know, like, That's kind of weird. And then the next day they're all gone, you know, and I, I'm pretty sure there was some criminal enterprise going there and like, and we're not touching this stuff. We don't want somebody <laughs> knifing us, but yeah. uh, it was, you know, the toilet would always overflow and the lights <laughs> didn't work right. And yeah. it, it was the, it was, it was the worst facility I'd ever worked in, but it wow. was the best time. It was the best time because there was just a couple of us and we had a single purpose. And we said, you know, Paul had this idea for a small pump and we didn't know what we we're going to pump, you know, some kind of liquid. But uh, his idea seemed really clever to me and it seemed doable. And I, you know, I just liked working with him and I, you know, met Jeff and the others, like, yeah, nice people. So we set about that 
and um, you know we we had to kind of show steps. So there was a we had an angel investor, and you know, well, if you you know can get it to do this, we'll give you some money, and you know that led to one thing to another, and we we kept performing, we kept getting it to pump, and I forget. When we settled on diabetes, I think it was we met an angel investor whose granddaughter had just been diagnosed with type 1. And so he was kind of keen on it. Wow. And, uh, you know, we what we, real, we realized two things. One is we realized that, that insulin is probably about the hardest thing to, um, to pump. And we also realized there was a fantastic need because we, we looked at our competitors and they were junk. I mean, mm. we like these pumps. You're like, are you kidding me? There's like up, down, enter, two two rows of text, heavily pixelated, black and white, indecipherable, um, yeah. you know, abbreviations. And we just thought, man, this is there's a there's a need for a better pump, and we've got a good mechanism. And what we realized was because insulin is probably the hardest thing to pump, if you can pump insulin, you can pump anything. So uh, that's how it started. And we, you know, started to execute. And one of the guiding principles was the, um, we would look at these other devices, insulin pumps, those other things, and say to people, why is this interface so bad? Mm-hmm. And people would say, oh, well, it's a medical device. FDA requires that. Wait, what? And their expectation was set by previous devices. And what I kept doing is I kept holding up this and saying, that sets the expectation now. The iPhone is what's setting the expectation, not some 30-year-old device. Mm. So we said, we're going to make a device that has a full-color touchscreen, rechargeable battery, and most importantly, very, very small and very, very easy to use. And... um, you know, that that was kind of the idea. We got some funding and I think, uh, I kind of forget the time frame now, but probably by about 2008, we had a few million dollars of funding. Mm-hmm. And is, then- uh, Is that when you started hiring more people or when was it that you we, started kind of seeing more growth in the, yeah, within the organization? Two, yeah, I think about 2008, because I think it was mostly me and Jeff. And then there was another contractor who sometimes had helped named Darren. Mm-hmm. And we kind of, we what we were doing at that point was- demonstrated technology and, you know, convincing somebody to pony up some money. And uh, once we got, ah, I wish I could remember the timeline. We, uh, we got series a, Mm. but the funny thing is they said to us, you know, you guys look like pretty good engineers, but there's not an executive among you. Uh, We'll give you some money, but you got to take our guy as president. Hmm. And so, well, can we meet your guy? And so we liked him. His name was Kim Blickenstaff, who I mentioned in the uh, beginning of the book. And uh, Kim said, yeah, I'll be happy to, but I'm retired. I live in San Diego. You know, I don't really want to drive up here. So I was like, well, if, if, we, if we move to San Diego, will you be our president? I said, yeah, sure. So we did. So we moved to Sorrento Valley, which is... Um, Oh, it, it's part of the, the city of San Diego, and it's, um, oh, I guess for someone out of town, it's kind of an unremarkable area. Sure. But uh, uh, at any rate, Kim was fantastic because he said, you know, listen, guys, he says, I'm not an engineer. My job is to get you money. Your job is to make the product, which is 
dream, right? I yeah. mean, <laughs> a business guy who's not going to meddle. This is great. <laughs> yeah. So then we started to hire. We actually only hired five software guys. Actually, we hired four. So we had five total. And um, really, we brought Slim to market, I think, over the next four or five years. I think we only hired one or two other embedded people. So wow. Um, so, probably the most. Oh, go ahead. Oh, so this was like your second location. Now you, you relocate yeah. to mm-hmm. kind of meet with the Series A. Now your new president or yeah. CEO, and that's when you started hiring more. Yeah, yeah. And so then we had, you know, um, I don't know. The company ended up probably then probably at about twenty people. Wow. Um, but one of the interesting things we did is um, real early on, we had some conversations between uh, myself and Paul, and then my uh, Mike Rosinko was our VP of engineering. And we had this conversation where we'd say, you know, we're making this company from scratch. Why don't we try to make it a company we'd like to work at? So that that seemed like a novel idea. And because and Mike also worked at the company where nobody would say uh, hello, you know. So and then. He, came and he'd say hello. And so three people who say hello, but um, we had this thought and and the, the related thought was, you know, as an engineer, you do your best work when you feel good. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's obviously true. Nobody in engineering feels better when you yell at them. Mm. You know, I, the only time I can think that work, if you're coaching football, you know, if you like yeah. yell at the linebackers, they get mad, they hit harder. So maybe that works, but yelling at an engineer, what is, what is that going to do? It's going to do the opposite of what you want. So uh, we did that, and probably the statistic I'm proudest of was of those original developers. We th- so we had the five, and then we had our five. A couple of them were interns. Anyway, we didn't lose any of them until 2019. Wow! So we had over a decade no attrition. And the funny part is, uh, the one who left was Dave Nguyen, and. Uh, Dave was, you know, right out of school when he started, but Tandem had kind of gone big in the meantime, and he decided to retire at a very early age. So, you know, it is technically true he quit, but he did not quit for another company. He just said, well, you know, Tandem was doing terrible, and then we got our algorithm on the pump, and then we're doing great. And, uh, yeah, who needs to work? So, Wow. So so it's kind of like – you know, when you share, like, when you first met uh, your team member there at the old office where everyone's just staring at their feet, I yeah. mean, I can imagine that says a lot about their organizational culture. And oh, it, it was and, and, was, and, and, at that, and at that time, did you recognize that? Or was it kind of like later on in your career you recognized, oh, that's why they were acting that way? No, I, I thought, oh, gosh, I've made a mistake. You know, there's there's that ethic where you don't want to stay at a company less than two years. You know, you, you always got to do that. And you know, the the and <laughs> company was nuts. I uh, the first day, I get there, and so I'm a software guy, and uh, we have this meeting, and the president says, "So we have a new project we're kicking off today. What do what do we know about this software? Well, we know it's going to be late, and the software is going to be terrible. Like, wait, what? And uh, you know, he said, oh, yeah, the software is going to be a problem. It's going to be the reason we're late. And I just, I couldn't help myself. I said, well, not anymore. And that was met with like disgust. People were um, like, get out of here. We we know software people are, are terrible. Like, what? <laughs> what? 
is happening? So they, they explained to me and they said, and beside at our company, software engineers aren't allowed to speak. So for the rest of this meeting, just, we don't want to hear from you. Wow. And uh, you know, and, and, and in fact, I, I mentioned Mike Rosinko was our uh, first VP. The, the truth is he was not one to say hello right up front. He, he was actually the one who said no speaking. So we do this project. It's kind of a goofy project, but we, you know, I got it done. And, and I, one of the young engineers that I had worked with the previous place, Paul, Paul Harris, um, I had convinced him to come join, which in hindsight wasn't really all that nice, but, but, you know, I said, Paul, I, I got to have a friend here. So I had, I had two Pauls that would talk to me. Anyway, we got it done. We got it done. I had a schedule, uh, you know, worked great. We tested very carefully. There were no obvious bugs. And, uh, Mike came to me and he was really mad. And he said, what are you trying to pull? What do you mean? He says, you're hiding things from me. Uh, help me out. I don't know what you're talking about. He says, you haven't reported a single bug. You, you know, when are we going to hear about the bugs? I think it works. You know, I don't think there's bugs. And so <laughs> I'm going to spend the next two weeks in the lab and I'm going to find your bugs. You know, so he spends two weeks in the lab and he comes back. He's like, so it works? I I think so. <laughs> you know, and it did. Uh, but after that, he, he, he said, now I can speak. So that, then we became friends. So the point is, you know, the first couple of weeks, I, or first couple of months, I was thinking, I, I need to quit. This place is just bonkers. But I uh, stuck it out and uh, ended up at Tandem. And yeah, it's all good. <laughs> oh, wow. So, yeah. so as you know, kind of in, I mean, just like in retrospect now, like you're saying like, you had all of these engineers and people on your team without the first person leaving since until 2019 was yeah. it were, were in from the engineering side and with your leadership like were you just very intentional and kind of crafting that organizational culture to I was, nourish yeah. your engineers and make sure that they excel I, I, I was and you know the thing is I didn't necessarily know what I was doing I didn't at that time understand even like if you said what's organizational culture I could kind of kind of almost describe it but I couldn't formally I couldn't describe it like I can now but I I just kept it this concept of you know people do your best work when you treat them and because of that company that they treated me so poorly that like fueled the fire like we're going to make this nice so I treated everybody with respect and and you know very interactive and stuff plus uh Every one of those first five, or actually first six, I was their first boss out of college. Wow. And so what I did, the idea was get them on the straight and narrow, show them the right way, because there's a right way to do software and there's a wrong way to do software. And get them on the straight and narrow. And and they don't have expectations of crazy culture and, you know, all this. It's just, you know, what engineers do is nice to each other and you, you document things and you show people what you're thinking about and you listen to feedback and, and all that sort of thing. By the way, uh, so Paul Harris, who I mentioned, he had actually, we had already worked at uh, two companies together. Mm. Hired him when he was 19 mm. and uh, we're still working together. He's a, a, I think he's a senior director at Tandem now. Um, so I started working with him in 2000. Wow. We're still working together, and he started. He, he he was 19 when he started, so we've been coworkers over half his life. <laughs> and Kevin Tran, same thing. Yeah. Uh, Kevin is. Uh, I think he started a few months before 
Paul, and same thing, four different companies. And, you know, Kevin's a um, principal engineer at Tandem. Yeah. Huh. Um, you know, you mentioned something, or I guess since we're talking about the kind of organizational culture, and perhaps like for yeah. our listeners, could you kind of share with us what your definition is, kind of like as you kind of described in the book of yeah. organizational culture? Yeah, and uh, I'm going to give you Edgar Schein's uh, definition. You had that humble yeah. inquiry book, same guy. So yeah. uh, first of all, to set up the definition, the word culture can be used in three ways in an organization. It's uh, kind of like an like a iceberg. So there's artifacts, which is what you see. So people wear um, you know, suits or they wear t-shirts or whatever. There's Nerf guns around, you know, whatever. Uh, the second is what uh, people say they believe. So that's the espoused values. I believe this. We believe this. And the third is what they actually believe. And Shine's insightful comment is in no organization are those last two the same. In fact, he says, you know, what is leadership? Leadership is getting those two to be the same. So the whole idea is to help people adjust to, to do what, what they say. At any rate, so having set it up, this is what culture is, organizational culture. Uh, it's the collection of uh, basic work and assumptions. So that's that bottom layer, what you actually believe, that the organization learned with regard to uh, uh, learning to work together, so internal integration, and learning to survive in their environment. So that's external adaptation. So the things they came to believe by, you know, working together, surviving in the, in the situation, and that worked well enough to be considered valid and for it to be considered appropriate to teach to new people in regard to how to think, how to feel, and the really scary one is how to perceive how things look hmm. in relation to those, those problems. Wow. So it's this what you really believe about how things are, and it really affects everything. It affects how you feel. It affects how you see. It affects yeah. how you think. I mean, it, it has more of a more of an impact than you than you realize. Right. Huh. That's that's really interesting. Yeah, because in your book you kind of lay out the two tables here. You have like a his primary embedding mechanisms, and then you have your secondary, yeah. and you kind of make it a pretty significant distinction between the two. Uh, and, I, I do. Yeah, and I, I do. And I, I guess me, like I, as I read this, it kind of sounds like you're kind of more of a proponent of the first primary, and seeing that there was more value in that. Or am I reading that kind of incorrectly? Or am I interpreting uh, that incorrectly? Or? You know, you're, you're 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 right. I mean, what it is, those those also are from Edgar Schein. So the the thing to know is, you know, when you talk organizational culture, who is the one researcher that stands above them all? It's Edgar Schein. He is in fact the man. But um, what he did in his research is for, for that, that table you're talking about, he got interested in how do you change culture? And as a lot of leaders discover, that's pretty hard. And so that mm -hmm. first list is the six things that uh, there's, there's 12 things he identified the, the six that, that actually work pretty well. Um, the last six, not nearly as much. Yeah. And the, the really funny thing is most of the time companies, when they try to do it, they, they address the last couple rather than the first, you know, for instance, um, do you have, do you have badges where you work now? Uh, no, I don't No. Okay. So no. we, we have badges now yeah. and, uh, uh, somebody decided that it's important that we, um, have quality now, duh, 
you know, medical device, of course you have quality, but, but somebody decided that there's a statement, you know, here's our statement of quality for tandem. It's really important. We buy in. So what they did, and I realize, I guess our, our listeners won't be able to see this, but here's my badge. And on the back, they put a sticker that, <laughs> that has oh, tandem's, wow. tandem's quality statement. And, you know, it's not like people read the back of their badge. You know, it's not like, well, I've got a few minutes. Let me let me review the back of my badge. And that's, you know, and it's really funny that people that did that really believe that's a positive step toward, you know, helping people. Right. <laughs> want quality. If, in, if and, anything, you would do the opposite or it would, yeah, yeah. Kind of contradict the whole purpose of it. Yeah. Well, yeah, I started with my son, who's an engineer, Tim. And uh, I, I, you know, I was just kind of laughing, saying, yeah, those things, you know, don't do anything to help uh, morale or anything. And he says, oh, you're wrong. It totally helps morale. And he's like, really? He goes, oh, yeah, we'll be at lunch and something will happen. And, you know, he says they they often just, you know, pull it out and read it, you know. (laughs) It's just kind of the go-to joke. He says, we have laughed more because of that. Um, quality statement than than probably anything else, and so he says it totally raises the morale. We sure. mock it so regularly. Yeah, the iron the irony of it, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. No, that that's really interesting. Yeah, because um, you know, as it relates to um, the USD Discovery District and how we're kind of building uh, the space in the second category for the secondary embedding mechanisms, item number ten here: design of physical space and buildings is in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So as I interpret this, is it more of like, that's perhaps if, 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 if organizational culture is kind of like at the heart of it and you want to really be very mindful in how you approach and how you kind of shape that, you should probably defer to the primary embedding mechanisms. And, and that's where well, you're talking about leaders and how leadership is and all that. I think what I'd say is the second um, the second six do make a difference. You can actually measure the impact, mm. but the measurable impact of the first six is so much greater mm. that I would say there's nothing wrong with the the second six. In fact, you know if you have a new building, you might as well try to do stuff to shape the culture. We, we tandem just moved into a new building a few months ago. And they've got, you know, our, our logos are kind of all over the wall. And uh, I don't know if that makes any difference. But, yeah, it certainly doesn't hurt. You know, it's right. a nice building. Mm-hmm. So I'm not against that. And I, I think the architects would rise up with pitchforks if we say their, <laughs> yeah, you know, their true. idea that yeah. we're going to make a statement. And, and, you know, architects are like that. Yeah. So it's probably not bad. Right, but right. if if you, if you do that, but don't uh, – you know, and then you say, well, how do you allocate your resources? If you allocate, if you say, um, you know, we really value R&D, yeah. you know, and then you say, ah, but we're going to cut your budget. You don't value R&D, you know, or, or uh, um, you know, that first one, what leaders pay attention to measure and control on a regular basis. You know, yeah. What what are the leaders paying attention to? That That's what's actually um, important. And, and people will pick up on that. By the way, when a when a new group forms, uh, the research is that um, uh, the founder, you know, the original leader, has uh, really an ability to embed things very easily. Like they'll set the tone, and this is what we're going to do. But once the group gets established, and you have 10, 12, whatever people, 
the, the group starts to reinforce among themselves with the values, whether or not they realize they're doing it. And, mm-hmm. and then it becomes pretty hard to change. But if you're just starting out, be very intentional on what you value. We, we wanted to make it a nice place. And that, you know, without us really knowing how important that was, it translated to Tandem's pretty cool place to work. You sure, know? And sure. People are nice and so on. So and everybody says hello. Right. Right, right. Yeah. I follow you. I follow you. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. That that's that's really interesting. So do you yeah. so how is the new place? Is it uh quite different from where you were previously at? Yeah, it's palatial. It's um the the place we're at, we're at Brazil Street, um, which I guess only San Diego people would know, but it's kind of this you know, swamp area and uh we we had five buildings on this street and uh <laughs> Yeah, the carpet was dirty. The walls needed paint, and uh, every time it rained, it would flood. Oh, uh, now the good news, you know, San Diego doesn't rain all that much, but but there was three times where there's floods enough where, where cars were floating by. Oh <laughs> so, my goodness! Literally, I'm Jeez. not making this up. Like, wow. like look at that. There's a car floating by, <laughs> and uh, you know it was a dump. Yeah. It was great. It was our place. It was our dump, and we didn't care about any of that other stuff. Um, we were so excited about changing people's lives. And, you know, we, we now have 440,000 people wearing our pump, which far exceeds wow. anything I ever dared to believe. Um, and people love our pump. And it really, you know, people, yeah, it's great. Anyway, the point is we were focused on the right thing. Like, mm. let's make a good pump. Um, we were not focused on having a nice office. Yeah. Um, we made that, we bought, you know, we, I didn't even buy it. We leased it, but we built it out. And we thought, well, I mean, no sense building out a dump. You know, let, let's build it out nice. So it's uh, it, it's actually kind of fun to be in. However, we thought, you know, all through the pandemic, we heard, we want to come back to work. We want to come back to work. And so we have this four-story building. Uh-huh. And uh, like I'm, the, I'm on the second floor, there's probably 100 cubes on the floor. Nice, open, light, glass walls, you know. And uh, I think today, the second floor, on a typical day, you know, we probably have 10 people. Oh, so most like, are remote? People aren't coming back. They're like, no, nah, I'm good. I'll, I'll work from home today. So we, we Yeah, so you kind of talk prison. about remote working in your book, too. Yeah, yeah. So we did, we did it well, which yeah. is turning out to be bad. Because <laughs> like that, nah, we're good. We'll stay. You know, and these are people remote from like ten miles away. They're like, no, nah, I'll work from home today. Oh, I see. No. Huh. Yeah. Oops. <laughs> Hindsight, we should have been bad at remote and people would be coming back in droves. Right. Um, I hear though that's a problem with a lot of companies. Yeah, especially Yeah. Um I don't even know how leadership would even approach that right it's like do you i mean do you enforce i mean i guess the best example that i can think of right now is like elon musk and the the whole twitter thing when he was forcing everyone to come back yeah he was really publicly clear about that and i think Mm -hmm. he got a lot of you know um that statement became controversial of some sorts um so it's just like yeah it just how how do you kind of do that but also maintain that i guess organizational culture and trying to treat your people and is that demonstrating leadership or like how yeah how do you kind of exist in this current like environment well so the good news is um you know 
Bill Gates is amazing, like, duh. But uh, he sees things before anybody does. And one of the things he saw about 15 years ago is he thought, you know, I think eventually software people are going to want to work remote. Mm. And he, I think he even said, like, probably by 2030, you know, that'll be a common expectation. And so, the, you know, he was right. The pandemic didn't do anything. It just accelerated it. But mm. at any rate, he started funding research. So he, he started funding a researcher named Karen Lojeski. And she tried to answer the question, how would you lead a, effectively a remote workfo- workforce? Like, how do you get all the bonding and commitment and, and creativity and all these things? The number one thing she found, she's, she's been studying this for over a decade now and has several great books. But the number one factor is always have your camera on. You've got to see the people you're interacting with. And uh, we did that, in my team anyway, we, we absolutely insist, like, hey, this is un, un, non-negotiable rule. You want to be on my team, you're going to have your camera on. And my team, I, I these days I do algorithms. And uh, at the beginning of the uh, pandemic, I had three people. And then I got up to like eight. So I hired five people during the pandemic. And you're like, well, how do you bond? And my answer was, well, we have we do scrum. So every day we have a little stand-up, supposed to be 10 minutes. And I said, all right, we're gonna do we're gonna grow this to 30 minutes. We're gonna have our cameras on. And for 20 minutes, we're gonna goof around. We're gonna tell jokes, hmm. tell funny stories, we're gonna see people's dogs and cats and kids and whatever you get, you know. And it's just all that we tomfoolery, you know, like <laughs> deliberately. But um we, uh, I very much made it a priority to bond and to, tr- you know, kind of do all the things in Lojeski's research. And uh, a lot of people report, you know, say, yeah, you know, actually we bonded even though we were remote. Wow. So the problem is, you know, problem. And everybody's like, yep, no, I'm good. And they're productive. You know, with Scrum, we've got ways to measure what they're doing. We know everybody's doing what they said. They make commitments. It's all kind of collaborative. Like we we would notice if people weren't working. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we got people around San Diego who come in one day a week or two days a week. And, um, I, you know, I, I guess it's fine. It's frustrating that we've got this gorgeous building that's, you know, mm. less than 20% occupied. Could have saved some money on real estate, but right. not sure what to do. Yeah. Up until quite recently, the other thing was we were in a very tight job market. And mm. so, the, you know, the thing is like, well, if we won't let them work remote, somebody else will. So, yeah, oh. okay. So you got to be competitive but, there too. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So huh. do you have so, right? like a preference in your personal preference, like remote or do you like being in the office and being around others or? I come in five days a week, and uh, one is I just can't believe how nice the building is. Yeah. But uh, as as well as we've done, we've done with remote, and I think we've done very well. There's no way you could ever convince me remote is as good as in person. Mm-hmm. You just you you have you overhear things. You just have little conversations. You're walking to the bathroom, and somebody you haven't seen in a month, you know, and they say something sort of offhand, and you're like, oh, I actually need that, you know, and just all these sort of unplanned interactions are the reason I think it's important, yeah. the reason I recommend it. Yeah. But I'm not enforcing my team. I'm saying, well, you know, that yeah. that's fine. I, I and about, They know that I prefer them to be in, but uh, I've also told them, well, you know, if that's what you're going to do, that's fine. This is a really interesting topic. Because now I'm kind of wondering, 
is this like a generational thing? Is it, do you feel like the pendulum's going to swing back and people will eventually want to be back in person and working next to each other or, or is this kind of the future and we're so, kind of in it? Yeah. What a great question. I, I don't think it's generational. I don't think it's like, Oh, millennials want to work at home or something. <laughs> I don't think it's anything like that. Yeah. Um, I, I think we went through a trauma as a nation and we're just kind of reacting and doing the best we can. I think people are seeing things different. Um, you know, they're maybe thinking, wow, I waste a lot of time commuting mm. um, and just kind of different priorities. So I'm, I'll be curious to see how this plays out. I, I would have thought everyone, the minute we opened that building, Everybody's going to show up. That's really what I thought. Yeah. It's not. Wow. So. Yeah. Stay I mean, tuned. Yeah. I mean, that's something that even in this part of the country too, in South Dakota, we'll have to um, pay attention to. Yeah. Yeah. That's the reality, honestly. And I've seen that myself too. And I mean, I guess I'm one of those. I mean, my situation was a little different, but I haven't really been in an office since uh like almost three four years ago now because <laughs> mm -hmm. most of my work is remote um yeah and you made a comment there about yeah i mean so many of us like oh yeah the whole country the whole world went through such like a yeah it's kind of like a traumatic situation there with pandemic i think we're still trying to analyze and process that because uh, i know like in colorado yeah. when COVID happened uh it was pretty strict restrictions like you know we were pretty locked yeah. down for a while there and yeah, and it was just like that was like the new norm, and it was kind of weird to go back, in some ways. Yeah, that, that's yeah. something that yeah, I'm sure research will kind of reveal how this all plays out in the. In the five yeah, years I'm now. pretty sure people are researching that. You know, I'm I'm not at the moment, but um, I, I'm yeah. Well, like you, I'm gonna be real interested to see how this plays out. My encouragement to listeners, by the way, is you know I I do think it's there's value in being together. And um, I think a little bit of it is, it's almost like we got out of shape, you know, you go running every day and then you stop running for six months and you try to run like, Oh, this is hard. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's the same kind of thing. And I'd encourage you to say, okay, if you're not going in at all, then say, listen, Hey, everybody, I'm coming in on Tuesday. Love to see you. And then start forcing yourself to come in on Tuesday and then expand that to Thursday. And yeah. then, you know, kind of build up and, um, I just, yeah, I'm a big proponent of uh, that. Now, having said that, there are times for software developers, especially, and I think really any engineer, but, you know, there are times when you need quiet time and, you know, it's like, Hey, I got to focus. I got to write some code. Okay. Working, you know, at home might be good provided it's quiet because mm -hmm. I know a few people that do that. And I know their house is just chaos. And so, well, okay, that, that's not the idea, but no, we'll see. I mean, I wonder like even like the FDA and just other regulatory bodies, like how do you even monitor, maintain quality and stuff for like a medical device company, but you have your workers that are working remote when there are certain things where you have to do in person, you have to show up to the lab. You have to be there in person to do things. Well, we are uh, mechanical engineers and electrical engineers were designated as um, like essential personnel or something. So they actually had, like papers given them that to say no i i have to go to work wow. <laughs> you know because we were thinking like we're going to get arrested if you're you know on the freeway and, and you know 
none of that happened. But, um, uh, you know, the manufacturing people all had to be there, the everybody wow. involved with equipment. So, you know, the uh, software people, uh, you know, if you got your laptop, you got what you need. Um, you know, a lot of the finance people and yeah. um, HR and, and, you know, marketing, things like that. You know, they they had everything if they had their laptop. So it mm -hmm. depends on the role. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I guess, uh, yeah, I think I guess one last thing I'll say on that topic is, um, I mean, having going through that myself and my kind of work situation, I find that the time I do spend with people in person, it's been way more intentional and the quality, you know, it's way better. Yeah. Yeah, because it's just like, yeah, either you go have a coffee with someone or you have that meeting with someone because you need to, you have that in-person experience. And I just find those moments, are, yeah, they're just a little bit more special now. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing is uh, I I'm, think I'm seeing that there's value in creating um, up, sort of uh, open space, open interaction. So four times a year, we, I fly the team in and, and we just do a lot of goofing around. You know, we'll go to the USS Midway. At, uh, it's a museum down here or go to the San Diego Zoo or, you know, you go up to L.A. and uh, just complete goof you know, at the surface. These guys are goofing around and we are. But. Every time we've done that, we've come up with multiple big ideas. And yeah. uh, I, I think we've come up with like eight patents on the Amtrak, you know, we're driving, <laughs> up, we're riding up to, to L.A. And, yeah. you know, I'm just like, hey, Peter, what are you doing? And he says something like, wait, what? And then Nick overhears it. And then Jack says something. And next thing you know, we, I mean, one second we're playing cards on the Amtrak. And next thing you know, we're having this intense conversation, like a great idea. And, you know, we could take some notes and then back to playing cards and goofing around and, you know, whatever. And I think making space for those unplanned interactions, I, I think that's valuable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. Yeah. In your book, you also um, you kind of mentioned that earlier about just the competitive environment as far as like workforce and stuff like that. And in your book, you kind of go into detail about how you hire engineers and, you know, the interview mm -hmm. process and so forth like that. And uh yeah, has that changed at all to kind of doing interviews now remotely and online and Zoom as compared well, to back in the day? You know, the team grew from three to eight online and uh, yeah, it seemed to work pretty good. Um, you know, especially with the, the, you know, the cameras on and everything, yeah. it's good. Um, you know, the principles though are kind of the same. I mean, uh, yeah, you share a secret, right? You share a secret in the book. Which, uh, which secret is that? That book's you, full of secrets. You guys all need to buy this book. It's amazing. Uh, this, this book, you say, um, here it is. Uh, I hire people who want to learn from me. And then yep. I spend a lot of time teaching them everything I know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I interviewed somebody this week and uh, I, I said, so what is What's the most thing you're most excited about coming to? Uh, all right, actually, did I say hired? I interviewed someone. Uh, what's the most thing you're excited about? Prospect of working at Tandem? I said, well, you've got a small pump. Said, Wait, <laughs> what? That that's you know, are you are you excited about the people? Are you excited about working with me with with working with Jack or Nick? And no, I think it's it's the small pump, and uh, you, you know, we're not going to hire that person, but. Uh, you know, the, the interview is the beginning of a relationship. And if this person is going to work with you for 10 years, it's the beginning of a significant relationship. And it, 
needs to be thought that way. So don't walk them in and say, here, I want you to take an exam. Mm -hmm. You know, don't, don't sit opposite the desk. Like, uh, you know, like your police interrogator. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, just kind of begin a relationship and, and kind of, you know, ask the questions and find out what you need to find out. But, uh, just don't think about, you know, the, the black knight in, uh, Monty Python's Holy Grail, none shall pass. I mean, that's how we do interviews, right? Yeah. No, it's a terrible idea. It is. Yeah. Just get to know them and ask your questions and be polite and don't think of yourself as the Black Knight and, you know, yeah. be a human. How about that? I know. It sounds so simple. Why is it sometimes it's so hard to do? <laughs> if everyone kind of just, yeah, why is that? Is that uh, just like you know, ego and, or what is that? Like, it's just... <laughs> Well, it is. And that's one of the, maybe the most important thing I say in that book is, um, so I, people listening, let me explain something. So I, in 2015, I went back to school and I earned a PhD in organizational leadership. And I did that, my dissertation, I studied engineers. The whole focus of my study was trying to understand how best to lead engineers. Anyway, so, so I'm not just like, spouting stuff. I, I'm talking about, you know, research and, and there's, I think, some substance what I'm saying. But anyway, uh, we deceive ourselves. And so you've, you've seen those movies or TV shows that the premise is uh, we only use 10% of our brain. And if we could use the other 90%, we'd be like a superhero. You've seen that, right? That's in mm -hmm. tons of movies. It's in TV shows. It's, it's a favorite. Mm -hmm. So it turns out that's nonsense. Uh, there's no part of the brain that's unused. Well, okay, I know a few people that's not quite true, but <laughs> but by and large, everybody uses all their brain. The thing is only 10% is used for cognition. That's the technical term for like thinking. The other 90% is uh, processing perception, you know, you know, visual stimulus. So you, you know, the part of the brain is interpreting the signals from your eyes, part of the brain's signals from your ears and, and so on. And so, the thing is, that 90% presents to the 10% its interpretation, and it presents it as if it's a fact. And so if you've had psychology in college, if you still have your old textbook, you'll find there's a chapter on perception that talks all about this. And there's known ways that your 90% will lie to your 10%. And one of them is, and especially with people in leadership, what the neuroscientists assure us the data is pretty impressive. It's overwhelming. As a leader, you will, by default, in your brain, believe that everything good that's happening around you is because of you. And everything bad about that's going on around you is not because of you. It's because of that guy. And so we we become managers, and then we, we start doing that. And the net effect is we tell ourselves we're great managers. In fact, it's hilarious. I'll get a group of managers to train or something, and I'll have them, I'll ask a question right on the paper and turn it in. You know what? Uh, wh where would you rate yourself, kind of, um, you know, zero to 100, or 100 is a great manager, and zero is like them terrible? Mm -hmm. Every person <laughs> rates themselves above average, like way above average, which, you know, cannot be 50% or above, you know, but, um, or at least median, anyway, above the median. And uh, we, we need to realize that our brain's working against us in this regard. And as managers as leaders we've we've got to learn to snap out of it and 
realized that we needed to take time to study our craft. Our craft used to be engineering. Now it's being a leader and they are not different. I mean, not, I mean, not the same. I don't know about your engineering skill of school. In my engineering school, nobody had, nobody taught me about people. No. Yeah, de- definitely not. Or communication at all. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or anything. Yeah. When I went to get my PhD, I thought, well, I'm an engineer. I should go to engineering school. And then I thought, wait, if I want to study, if I want to learn about people, engineering school is probably not the right place. But I'm involved with the American Society of Engineering Managers. And most of them have PhDs from engineering schools. And they're generally appalled by the fact that my PhD is not from an engineering school. Like, really? You're you're saying you're going to talk about people based on a degree you got in engineering school? Is, is that really what you're saying to me? And by and large, the answer is, yeah, that, that's exactly what I'm saying. That, too, is all part of the deception. Whatever I did is good. Mm. And, and here's the thing. As a leader, the news is sometimes our people do not succeed because of us. They succeed in spite of us. Sometimes we're not helping, we're hurting, and the success is because they're, you know, is making up for our stupidity. Anyway, I forget how I got on that, but but that is the you know the big news with with uh, managers is you know we've got to realize that we just deceive ourselves and we got to get a dose of reality. And the key is to find somebody who will be honest with you, and yeah. not somebody who's going to suck up because they want to raise or whatever. But you know, find a friend who will say. You know what? You're acting like an idiot. <laughs> and Dr. Allrich, have you experienced that transformation yourself in your career? Oh yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I don't remember if I mentioned this in the book. I don't think I did. But uh, when I was in school, so part of it is you learn how to do research, and, and you know, and so one of the classes we had to conduct some some quantitative research. So that's going to be, you know, like. It's going to be a number somehow. So, you know, how much do you agree with this? Somewhat, somewhat agree, somewhat disagree. It's, you know, one of those things. And uh, I had been reading about something called servant leadership, which I think is a great paradigm. And there's some great tools for measuring servant leadership. And uh, I, I, I actually, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I, I remember thinking, you know what, I'm going to give this survey to my team. So at the time I had about 60 people who worked for me. And I remember thinking, I'm gonna, I'm gonna show this professor what's up. I'm gonna show him results from me. And uh, the way the servant leadership scale works is there's six dimensions, and and you don't roll them up into one. You just like, okay, this is what you got in this dimension, and and so on. And I did the study and explained it, and you know all this, and collated the results. And uh, so it turns out five of the things I do really well. And uh, what I did not realize is I was a pompous jerk. And uh, so if you're thinking, you know, I wonder if you're, if you're thinking, gosh, am I a jerk? The best you can do is kind of guess. I have scientific proof that I'm a jerk. <laughs> so uh, that, that, was, that was pretty rough. Uh, you know, because I, I, I tell myself I'm this amazing leader. And for sure, I've done some good things. But <laughs> you start looking at the data like, Oh, this looks differently when you work for me. So uh, that was uh, that was my big moment. Wow. 
while wow. realizing, yeah, I, I, it stands scientifically proven that I'm a, I'm a jerk. So uh, yeah, there's some life change happened after that. Some self-reflection, some, wow. oh no, I got to find people who tell me the truth. Cause you know, people were kind of sucking up to me as opposed to telling me what I need to hear. So yeah, yeah that was, that was very transformational. By the way, uh, before you do that, before you give a survey to your people, think twice because dang, it stings. That was a, <laughs> that was a bad day. When I, when I process the data, like I thought it was a nice guy. And like, no, no. And then, and then you start catching yourself. You're like, you know, cause like, like they said I did this. And then you do, you're like, Oh, yeah, I, yeah, that's that's bad news. <clears throat> so it was transformational doing that program. And I mean, as I hear you share that story, uh, it just kind of reminds me of just, is this how we as engineers are just kind of are? Like we need to have that quantitative fact in front of us to make us be like, oh, how do I justify this or how do I challenge that? And if I can't, then shoot, maybe that's right. And maybe I should be open to learning something new. And maybe that's what makes us engineers, right? <laughs> it's yep. just that going through that process. Well, yeah. And you know, one thing we do as engineers, and it was all part of this realizing, oh, I do this, is I just, you know, you put me in a room with a bunch of non-engineers and I just kind of believe I'm the smartest guy in the room. And, uh, you know, uh, we, we, we just desperately want to, believe that and desperately want to believe, you know, because with engineers, right. A lot of times, you know, childhood didn't go great. Didn't pick last for the baseball team. And, you know, and finally there's something you get a positive feedback on. Hey, you're smart. Oh, that's a good thing. Hey, yeah, I'm smart. And all of a sudden you have this desperate need to believe you're smart and you, you don't want to believe that other people are smart and you want to believe you're smarter and, and you know, kind of all that. But uh, and a related thing is, I've seen this a lot. So you get, like take an electrical engineer who does uh, digital circuits. And so they're real good at their job. So somebody's been principal engineer doing digital circuits a long time. And then you say, hey, can you design this analog circuit? And they're like, oh, I do digital. Okay, in the grand scheme of things, digital and analog are like a quarter inch apart. And that electrical engineer will get books, they'll go online, they will spend hours learning what they need to learn because it is a quarter inch away from their training, mm -hmm. right? And then you promote that engineer to manager and manager and engineer are a thousand miles apart. Like there's nothing, almost nothing overlapping. It is, you're now in, you're in the people business. Mm -hmm. And what do most engineers do? Do they, do they run to all the books and kind of like the, you know, the, the digital engineer trying to learn some analog and panicking and studying and trying to make the best of themselves. No, they say, oh, I got this. I know how to do it. And so you, you, you're not, we're, we're not, I wasn't trained for this. I mean, I, I guess I am now, but, but you know, up until not that long ago, I wasn't trained for this. You know, I just assumed I'm a good manager and I assumed I, I don't need to learn anything. And, um, boy, that's, that's not good. By the way, the reason for the book is, um, it's the book I wish someone gave me wow. way back when, when I became a manager, wow. um, would have been a whole lot less, uh, painful if I had no, no, known some of this stuff when I was in my twenties, 
and look back in 30 years like, yep, there's 30 years of being a jerk. Wow, that's a legacy. Nice job, Tom. <clears throat> Don't be like me, whatever you do. <clears throat> well, at the very least, I appreciate you kind of passing the knowledge. And uh, yeah, I mean, when I when I picked up this book, I, I kind of view this as like a cheat code, or like a fast track and just... Yeah, just things are just kind of like learn from those stories. And I think uh, I will say it's pretty admirable for you to even have the courage to even talk about that stuff. Because I know that's probably not easy to do either, I imagine. Um, and, um, you know, I kind of want to end our, you know, our interview here and our conversation kind of maybe on a positive note. And, mm -hmm. and uh, maybe just kind of pose this last question to you. It's like right now with respect to, yeah, your work, this new book coming out, like, what are you most excited about? Well, um, you know, from time to time, I get uh, people will contact me and say, hey, you know, can you come consult? Can you can you advise us? Whatnot? I love doing that. So, hey, anybody listening, man, I'm yeah, I'd love to come consult, um, do some training, whatever. Uh, I'm pretty excited about that. I spent a lot of time. I mean, the uh Getting that PhD was definitely the hardest thing I ever did. And I kind of thought, oh, it'll be easy. It's not engineering. And it turns out it was way harder. But um, the, I am excited about that. I'm excited about helping uh, new leaders. Uh, kind of excited to see where this is going. I got another book in the in the works that haven't really figured out what to call it yet. But it's kind of a, it's maybe essays on leadership just to come in at it from a different angle. Yeah, you know, at work, what I do mostly is algorithms. We got some some really good algorithms coming that our existing algorithm control IQ is pretty good, but you ain't seen nothing yet. So, yeah, we'll see. Being an engineer. You know, we got the best job in the world, right? It's cool being an engineer. Used to my math, my science, get to help people, make life better. Hey, what's not to like about that? Thank you for listening to this conversation with Dr. Tom Allrich. This podcast is sponsored by University of South Dakota Discovery District. The USD Discovery District is a newly established research park located in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, committed to offering cutting-edge life science facilities to companies engaged in advancing life science, biotechnology research, and innovation. For leasing inquiries and more information, please visit usddiscovery.com. More information is available in the show notes of this episode.